I did want to share this iconic photo of Dwayne The Rock Johnson as we get started here. Um, this made the rounds on talk shows uh, because my wife, Allison, is not here. She is nine months pregnant. I mean, she's pregnant, pregnant. Uh, and so this actually, the next time you see me, Lord willing, I will be a dad, which is awesome. Um, but Trunk or Treat is on Friday. We're hoping to attend. But if not, I did want to share our Halloween costume with you guys. Uh, this was from our maternity photos. We got to have fun in life, right? So got the fanny pack, got the got the big jeans, got the chains. And so we did have fun. This first baby gets this. I don't think future kids will get maternity photos. So, um, But this was down on Summit Avenue. Perfect fall day. And, uh, and, and Andrew already mentioned fall. And I'm thinking about fall. One of my favorite things is uh, fire pits. Just sitting around a fire pit, hanging with people, um, getting to have conversation. It's something about staring at a fire opens up the conversation for deeper communication. I wanted to talk about uh, these, this kind of five, this idea of five levels of communication that we all kind of have. That we have these different approaches to communication. So uh, on the screen, you got cliches at the top of this pyramid, facts, opinions, and as we go down, feelings and heartfelt needs. And we all kind of have these with people, depending on the nature of the relationship or how you know them. Um, so for example, a cliche would be you walk past a coworker you don't really know and you say, working hard or hardly working? <laughs> Classic. Um, and then, or facts, right? Maybe like, oh, uh, Christian Yelich, Brewers player, hit uh, 310 this year. You state a fact and you guys talk at the facts level. Opinions. Uh, maybe you get into like, who makes the best French fries? Like, I... Uh, Wendy's has got a new fry, by the way, guys, in the commercials. It looks pretty good. Anyway, that's that kind of level. Feelings is a kind of deeper level of sharing actually. How did, how did something make you feel? And then heartfelt needs is like, what do I actually need in this relationship? And it is actually very intimate to communicate that. And actually, these two on the bottom, feelings and heartfelt needs, are deeper levels of communication that are particularly difficult for people to get to and uh, one of the reasons why I love fire pits and sitting around a fire is oftentimes that's where you actually can start to get into those deeper conversations that we move past discussing what our favorite beverage is or um, what, our, what the best day of the week is or whatever opinion we might have and actually get into heartfelt needs um, or things that are, are deep down. And so this is kind of fun for this week because we're going to be looking at a passage where God is going to tell us not something that he needs, because he's God and he doesn't need anything, uh, but something that he desires, something that he wants from us. In fact, that's the big question today. What does God really want from us? The message today is titled, What God Wants. And we're in Hosea, we're going to cover a lot of verses, um, 6, 1 through 7, 2. Um, but just to get some context again, where we're at, we've shown this every week, but Hosea 1, 2, beginning of the book says this, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, Marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And we've mentioned numerous times that this is an idea of prophetic speech act, or God is asking his prophet to do something that's going to resemble his relationship with his covenant people. He wants it to demonstrate something. As we continue on in Hosea, we see the real charges. God's going to start bringing charges against his people and how they've been unfaithful to him. So Hosea 4.1 says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, 
no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. And so we see these three things, no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement. And that's why the prophet Hosea is speaking these words to the people. And last week we looked at Brian, Pastor Brian took us through the root fruit, kind of that, that I have outcomes of my sin, but there's actually something deeper in me um, that is leading me to sin. And, and God is afflicting his people and then concludes with this verse. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. And so the idea that we concluded on last week of, of this passage is, is God's people are experiencing the consequences of their sin, of their rejection of him and their spiritual adultery, as it were, their unfaithfulness to him. And they are going to experience those consequences until a time that they're going to finally wake up and turn and seek him, or at least we're led to believe. So I'm going to read our passage then. It's going to be on the screen, or you can follow along if you brought a Bible. I'm going to read the whole passage, and we'll come back and make comments. Starting in chapter 6, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And now we can have the shift to God speaking. In verse four, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of evildoers, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. I've seen a horrible thing in Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution. Israel is defiled. Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed and the crimes of Samaria revealed. They practice deceit. Thieves break into houses. Bandits rob in the streets. But they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. Kind of an intense passage. God bringing this word to his people through the prophet Hosea. And we go back to the beginning though. And we have Israel speaking. And verses one through three, again, come let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And it was interesting in studying this week, there was debate among commentaries. And this section of verses one through three in Israel speaking, are they truly repentant? That is a repentance just being a big word for acknowledging sin, turning from sin back to God. Or is this a half-hearted repentance? Are they truly, is Israel truly wanting to know the Lord or, or 
are they just tired of the consequences of their sin? The Africa Bible commentary says this, the call to return to God in verse three is repeated. Let us acknowledge the Lord. The Israelites' failure to acknowledge him had been condemned in chapter four, verse one. And so they seek to set this right. They are certain that if they do this, the Lord will respond by revealing himself and blessing them. They are confident of this as they are confident that the sun will rise tomorrow. Like the regular winter and spring rains, he will reveal himself to those who desire him and will renew and refresh them. His behavior is as predictable as the seasons. Like the wayward wife in 2.9, which we saw uh, Hosea's wife Gomer was wayward. Israel has recognized the futility of its ways. Like the wife, the people have been forced to realize the real source of blessing and trouble, and they know that their former partner still cares for them. But in both cases, the motive for return is selfish. Neither the wife in chapter two nor Israel here shows any love for the one they are returning to. They admit no guilt and are only interested in what they can get out of the relationship. Or as another scholar, Baby Keem says on the album Donda, on the song Praise God, the album by Kanye West, y'all treat your Lord and Savior like renter's insurance. You know what I mean? That there's, I'm experiencing, I don't remember that I have renter's insurance. If you're a renter, you never think about it. You just have it until a time of distress. Then you go to it. Treating God as someone I remember in a time of distress, then I go to him for what I can get out of the relationship. I forget about him until I experience discomfort. Then I say, God, bless me again. So I, I think I lean in, in line with what the Africa Bible commentary, Doug Carew says and, uh, in this idea. And I think this is why. I think this is a half-hearted repentance from Israel because of verse four, God is lamenting as a parent over their child when it misbehaves. What can I do with you, Ephraim? Ephraim, another name, more, a more childlike affectionate name for Israel. What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Is this half-hearted love or half-hearted repentance or true repentance? I think it's half-hearted that this love is fleeting. You come back to me for a time to remove the discomfort and then you leave. They want God for what he can do for them instead of wanting God for who he is. And so then his response is in verse five, therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. This is uh, kind of in the Bible storyline, God creates this covenant, has this covenant with Israel. And he says, I will bless you when you live in these ways. But if you live in these ways, you will experience cursing. And the people start to live in the ways that are bringing upon them the curses. And so God sends the prophets to call the people back to him. But those words end up being a further indictment because of Israel's sin, because of their fleeting love. They're further indicted as sinners. So it looks like they're being cut to pieces by God's words because they refuse to come back to him. And then verse six says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. 
God is actually going to have quite a few charges here against his people. Six In, in verse 4, they have fleeting love. Verse 7, covenant unfaithfulness. Verse 8, idolatry, which is just worship of false gods, worship of the creation. And deceit, verse 9, conspiracy and murder is abundant. Verse 10, abomination, defilement. And then in chapter 7, lack of acknowledgement of God, lack of acknowledgement of their own sins. In verse 10 of chapter 7, a refusal to return to God, a refusal to acknowledge God. Verse 13, rebellion and false speech about God. In chapter 7, verse 14, appealing to false gods with false practices, the people were actually slashing themselves as an appeal to the, the false god Baal. And then in chapter 8, even more charges, charging them with breaking the covenant, breaking it. Turning to other nations in verse 13 and 14, forgetting God. So God has quite a few charges against Israel. Douglas Stewart says it this way, the people have understood worship as their Canaanite neighbors, those who would worship Baal, those who they were amongst understood it, as limited to ritual acts of sacrifice. I just have to sacrifice, I just have to perform ritual in order to be right with God. That's how the Canaanites do it. One showed devotion to the gods by sacrificing to them regularly. In turn, the gods did their part by benefiting their supplicants. But Yahweh, God's relationship to Israel, was not just another religion. The Canaanites might be free to oppress their neighbors, flirt with other gods via the rampant syncretism. Syncretism just means the mixing of worship with other things of the day. Or live, in self live self-centered lives in which personal passions claim the highest priority. But Israel's covenant with Yahweh had stipulations that went far beyond prescriptions for ritual. This covenant went beyond just going through the motions to obey God and get things from him. No, these stipulations that God has with his people are summarized as covenant loyalty and knowing God. So that's Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. They're implicated, but what about us? And this is where we've got to see this in verse 7. It says, As at Adam they have broken the covenant, they were unfaithful to me there. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, Adam is the first uh, person created by God. And he, along with his wife, sin against God and, and invite curse upon the creation through their sin. They were unfaithful, but one thing that one other way Adam is portrayed in the Bible is, is as a representative of humanity. And this picture, the storyline of the Bible shows that it isn't just some people, but all people who have abandoned God, who have rejected him as creator, who are unfaithful to him, even though the breath in our lungs comes from him. And so we are implicated in this passage to all those charges against Israel are charges that are against us. That we are those who are stuck in sin, perpetuating rebellion and injustice, worshiping falsely. We're totally guilty. And the question is, what is going to deliver us from that guilt? Which brings us back to these levels of communication because God is gonna tell us what he wants what does he really want? And we see it in this passage, Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God 
rather than burnt offerings. God had set up the sacrificial system in Israel as a way to, for the people to draw near to him. The shedding of blood of animals, in a sense, purifying the people so they could draw near. Burnt offerings as a way of offering praise and thankfulness to God, burning of animals. So we're asking, wait, God, you're saying you desire mercy and knowing you, but you set up this sacrificial system. You set up this pattern of worshiping you. And now you're saying you desire loyal love? Another and perhaps better translation of this mercy. You're desiring us to know you? Do we see this theme elsewhere in the Bible? We see it a lot of places. 1 Samuel 15, which we'll look at. Hebrews 10, we're going to look at. Psalm 51. The prophets have this theme all over them. Jeremiah. Isaiah in chapter 1 says, I'm tired of these bulls. Stop killing bulls. I want you to repent. Isaiah chapter 58, the people are fasting and saying, hey God, we're humbling ourselves. Will you bless us? And he says, the fast I actually want is for you to loose the bonds of the oppressed. I want you to look like me and do justice in the world. I don't want your false fasting. I want you to live in obedience that reflects me. Matthew chapter 9 and 12, Jesus is going to take this theme home for us, and we'll look at Matthew chapter 9. But let's see this theme in a couple places, kind of in the storyline of the Bible. First, we see this in King Saul, where King Saul was facing a military battle, and so instead of letting the prophet Samuel do the sacrifice, he steps in and disobedience to God. And God actually is going to depose him as king for his disobedience. And when he does that, Samuel says this to him, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And in this passage, Saul is indicted by Samuel of guilty of his sin and Saul actually denies that he sinned. He doesn't take ownership of it. He gets defensive even though he is clearly wrong. And this is all of us. This is what we set out to offer to God, this horse drawing right of the left side. I'm going to start by drawing the most beautiful horse. God, here's what I'm going to offer you. I've got so much to give you in my sacrifices, my works, this ritual worship. But what we end up offering to God, that other side, nothing, because everything we offer to God is tainted by sin. So then the question is, how do we respond when we're torn to pieces by our sin and our consequences? Do we buckle down, just try and dig deeper? I'm going to give you a better version of me next time, God. Or do we look to him? David says this in Psalm 51, as we continue looking at this theme, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Instead of saying, here, God, here's what I can do to you, or instead of blaming and denying and defending himself, David says, I've got nothing to offer. You wouldn't delight in the sacrifices, so here's what I've got, myself, broken by my sin. That's what you'll accept. We see this theme in Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. The calling of Levi of Matthew, the tax collector. It says in verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. 
Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. People saw Jesus call Matthew, this this outcast, this tax collector, to himself. And Jesus actually goes and, and has a meal, shares a meal, the intimacy and connection of a meal with Matthew. And other tax collectors and sinners are like, oh, I can hang with that guy too? This is wild. And it is. We see this in verse 11. When the Pharisees see this, the religious rulers of the day, they don't go to Jesus, but they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus hears this and he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But he tells them something. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I was looking this up at first, I was like, gosh, if I was a Pharisee, these people that know the the scriptures inside and out, and Jesus said, go and learn what this means, I'd be so offended. But he's not saying that in that sense. He's saying, go back, reread that with a creative imagination and ask yourself, what does God really want? Because the reason they didn't want tax collectors and sinners to be associated with them was because of some of the rituals that they had set up. And he says, you got to learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, not ritual. And I think the thing the Pharisees miss, which we can't miss, is in this story, who are we? We're the sick. We're the sinners. We're not righteous. We're not healthy. That God's not interested in ritual and our going through the motions, rule keeping though. He's interested in actual loyal love that comes from a transformed life. And this is the uniqueness of Christianity that our loyal love now, because you might hear that and say, okay, I just got to buckle down. I just got to love people better. My neighbor, my community. If I just buckle down and love people better, God will accept me. This is the beauty of Christianity though. That's not how this grace operates. God accepts us because of Christ. And out of that, we turn around and resemble him. Out of that, we overflow with love for our neighbor, for our communities. Not to gain his favor or earn his favor, but as a response to what he's done for us. And so let's take a look at a couple of responses to this group. A response from a tax collector and a sinner that can help instruct us So first we see Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus as a tax collector certainly had cheated people. 
And the law response commanded two times the amount. But here's Zacchaeus saying, wow, I've come to know Jesus. I'm giving half my possession to the poor. If I've cheated anybody, the injustices I've committed, let me work to correct them at four times the amount. And Jesus says, when he sees that response, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That Zacchaeus has this experience of Jesus and responds and Jesus acknowledges, this is one who has experienced my salvation. It's shown by his actions. Let's look at a sinner. We looked at this last week a little bit. In John chapter four, the Samaritan woman who Jesus had just told that she had five men who were not her husband. And then though, the beauty of this context in this passage, Jesus looks her in the eye and reveals himself to her as the Messiah, as God's chosen one. To this not even Jewish woman, he says, I who you speak to am he. And after he reveals himself to her, she turns around and tells everybody. And it says then in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. It started with her experiencing the grace of Jesus, which overflowed into her testifying to his goodness until people heard it enough that they understood him as the savior in their own lives. So what about us? How do we now respond to God's loyal love? If, if we're not doing things to, to earn God's love, but actually responding to it, what does that look like? So we got to go back to our theme again because we got to see this. And we'll go back. We did a a study in the book of Hebrews, but we've got to see something here. Jesus didn't come just to call sinners to repentance in order that we would just fix ourselves. He didn't come just to call sinners to repentance. He came to die for our sins. He came to pay the penalty that our sin deserved. And here's how Hebrews describes it. And it's again on our theme. Verse five of chapter 10, it says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, as if he's speaking to God, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. What is that will? that the son of God should take on flesh and die on a cross to deal with our sin. First, he said, the author continues, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He set aside the first, the law, ritual relating to God through rules. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. All. That actually God did desire one sacrifice, the sacrifice of his son. And because of that sacrifice, he now can have mercy on us because our sin and our guilt has been dealt with. 
Tom Schreiner says it this way, if we consider sacrifices canonically, that is in the storyline of the Bible, they point to the sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews emphasizes that old covenant sacrifices are inferior since they did not truly cleanse the worshiper in conscience and did not bring complete and permanent forgiveness of sins. He continues, according to Romans, the sin offering is fulfilled in Jesus Christ so that there is no condemnation for those who belong to him. His sacrifice has brought justification and redemption through his blood. Glad fellowship with God has been restored forever through the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This theme is good news. This is the gospel. That God did not desire mercy, but, or did not desire sacrifice, but mercy. And through the sacrifice of Christ, he can now justify us. He can declare us righteous, our guilt and our sin removed because of the cross. So we can now go back to Hosea 7, 2 and look at it before the cross. God concluded in his charges in this section against Israel by saying, but they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. Now we can read it after the cross, but they do not realize that I remember none of their evil deeds. My grace engulfs them. They are always before me as my righteous son. That when we put our faith in Christ, we are united with him. And we are before God as his children, justified in Christ. So what does God want? He wants us. And he did what it takes to have us. So the low barrier to this, how do I get in on this? The low barrier of grace is simply to repent and believe. To believe the gospel, to put our faith in Jesus, to turn from our sin and acknowledge God's mercy. Adele came out with a new song, first time in six years. If you're not a big Adele fan, um, sorry to you, she's amazing and her music's amazing. But one of the jokes about her music is that uh, you can't listen to it without getting emotional. In fact, when I was preparing this sermon, Allison was upstairs and she could hear I was listening to Adele her new song, Easy On Me. And Allison texted, are you okay? Just needed a good cry. Uh, one, one author reviewing it says her intent is to rip the listener's heart out and she does just that. But this song, Easy On Me, is Adele writing a song to, to her ex-husband and to her son. Acknowledging the pain that's been caused by their divorce. And she's asking, go easy on me. One review says, in writing the album and coming to terms with its subject matter, Adele made a realization that distinguishes the upcoming LP, her new album, and the song Easy On Me from her other music. Adele realized that maybe she was the problem. Maybe she was the running theme in all her past relationships that did not work out. It's a realization that no one ever wants to make about themselves, let alone share with the world. Here is Adele wanting grace and she's coming to this realization. That's what true repentance is. That's what coming to Jesus is. It's coming to a realization that we are the problem and that we need redemption. 
But then the question is, are we going to offer God our ritual and our works, or are we going to appeal to his mercy? And that's what true repentance is. True repentance is fully acknowledging wrongdoing. I'm not going to blame. I'm not going to deny. I'm not going to defend. I'm going to acknowledge my sin. And I'm going to acknowledge there's no works. There's nothing I can muster up to offer you, God. I need complete mercy and that ultimately my sin is against you. But then we acknowledge God's mercy in the gospel. That Christ's blood has covered my sin and now I can delight in grace and I can actually respond with real action in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the primary way that God relates to us, one commentary I read this week is, the primary way God relates to sinners is through mercy. Because he has to. Because we're sinners. If he didn't relate to us through mercy, we're done. But the good news is, he does. And so then how do we walk out that repentance? We've shown this a few times. It's from Pastor Steve at the downtown campus. It's called Gupa. How do we walk in repentance? G stands for gospel truths. How is Jesus the hero of this? U stands for utter dependence on the Holy Spirit, that I can't do anything. I repent and I need your help. P stands for pathways. How can I now, acknowledging that, coming to terms with God, how can I walk this out? And then A stands for accountability. How can people in my community come alongside me to help me walk out this repentance? And I actually want to take this and make it another acronym besides GUPA. And I want to take the G, the UP together, and then the A and say repentance is give up already. Stop trying to earn a relationship with God and depend instead upon his mercy, his grace to you. Stop running from him and blaming and denying and defending your sin and depend on him and his grace and his mercy to you. Give up already. That's what repentance is. It's turning from self back to God. And then after the cross, after we've done that, Paul says this in Romans 12, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship that God doesn't want our half-hearted repentance or our sacrifices. He wants us. And on this side of his mercy, let's offer ourselves to him. He wants our faith. He wants us to experience his grace in Christ. He wants us to experience his mercy and his loyal love. This is the, the beauty of Adele's music is that she's gone through so much personal pain that she can turn around and, and pour that out and actually it, it helps us relate to our own pain. But in the same way, when we've really come to understand God's mercy for us, when we've seen ourselves as the sick and sinners and his covering of us by his son, then we can turn around and truly become people who offer up mercy, not sacrifice, who live in compassion and loyal love, who confront injustice, who right wrongs in our own lives and in the world, and who give ourselves in love to God and neighbor. The more we experience God's grace, the more that overflows. Adele was asking people to go easy on her. When we repent, we're asking God, go easy on me. And because of the cross, he does. 
So as we close in gospel application, I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to do anything except receive God's grace. Let God's loyal love to you, his mercy to you, overshadow you as we close. We're going to close with a couple songs. We're going to enter into a time of communion now. Uh, communion cups are in the back here at Hope. Uh, we practice, we call it open communion. We don't ask that you be a member of this church or any church. We only ask that you be a follower of Christ. When we take this communion, we're remembering his grace to us. His blood shed for us, represented by the Jews. His body broken for us, represented by the wafer. We're remembering afresh his grace. So I'm gonna pray, invite the worship team up. We're gonna sing a couple songs. And I just ask you to, in that time, receive his grace. Experience his mercy. Enjoy his kindness to us in his son. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who is merciful and you relate to sinners in mercy. You've shown us that mercy most fully in the miracle, the, the glory of your son taking on flesh and dying for our sins, that you now can shower us with your mercy and your loyal love and you make us a people who have loyal love that reflect you and know you. So God, would you work in our hearts Right now, would you just help us to receive your grace in this moment that you might be more honored and glorified as we walk out of here. We pray all this, trusting in the power of your spirit at work in us and in the name of Jesus.